week I asked you to examine three things that you could do that would kind of uh, promises that you should make yourself in 2017. Today I want to talk about promises that we could make to God. Resolutions. God's actually not big on promises because um, he knows we're terrible at keeping them. It's not good to make God promises that you're not going to keep. So if you read the scripture, you'll actually see God says, listen, don't waste your time. Um, but I think that you can make resolutions. You can resolve to, to change and to do things better. And so as a church, I, I'm hoping that I'm going to give you a couple things. I would like you to think about resolving to do these better in 2017. You ready? Yes. All right. Well, that was half-hearted, but that's okay. I'll go it. That's good enough for me. Um, my brother-in-law. Uh, his name is Marco. He looks exactly like you would think he looks um, with the name Marco. He, uh, once, he prides himself as being at one point, the, you know, there's a big kind of Italian guy. At one point, he prided himself on being the strongest guy in Gold's Gym in, I think, Union County. Right? True story. And, uh, and men, this is not the guy you want to, to marry your sister. We would all agree with that, right? And so... Marco marries into the family, and, uh, and so, you know, our, we've raised our families together, his kids and my kids are around the same age, blah, blah, blah. And, and Christmas comes, and uh, I go to the mall, and I, I, I shop for my wife, and Marco, he, he would go to the mall, and he would shop for his wife, and our families would get together on Christmas Day, and John would almost invariably walk in, and people would say, oh my gosh, what a, what a great outfit, that's incredible, where'd you get that, it's really beautiful, I really like it, blah, 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 this and that. And Joan would say, John bought it for me. And, you know, my, my sister-in-law, my brother-in-law, they'd all laugh and go, John boy, you know, how could John possibly have got it? But over time, it started to become a thing. Like, John was pretty good at buying these clothes. Conversely, what happened was, my sister would then start to point out what Marco bought her for Christmas to the point where she would just make fun of it. Oh, that's what you got your wife? Let me show you what he got me. And she would break out some sweat top, you know, a cowboy's jersey mismatched to leggings or something. And, and she was always bringing it back. And so we had this, this thing going on and on. And Marco would say, how are you doing this? Like, how do you get this right? And I said, well, what are you doing? He goes, well, I think I know what she wants. And I go to the store and I kind of look through the, the aisles and I find what I think it is she'd like, but she never likes it. I said, well, there's your problem. I said, when I go into a store, I never once look at any of the stuff that's in the aisles. I immediately look at mannequins. <laughs> and I just, I stare at the mannequins until I see something that I say, Joan would look good at that. And I say, I'll walk into a store, I'll go, give me that mannequin's outfit, that mannequin's outfit, and that mannequin's outfit. I take no pride in this, right? I tell them what size, they wrap it up, I go home, I look like a hero, right? <laughs> and people go. That's right, see, man, man, this is easy. And I think it's the ladies that are actually clapping for you men. <laughs> this is not that hard. Because here's the deal. You actually don't know what it is they want. Because you're no expert in this stuff. Why would you think you know what, it's going, you know what your wife really wants? So I go to the store, and I figure that there's somebody there that actually knows what my wife wants. Right? They did the work. They, they put the, the fabrics and the colors together. Headless mannequins. Now when I walk in, I could just hear them calling me. Buy this for Joan. I'm the only guy that sounded kind of weird because I'll be looking like opening the blouses, looking for the price tags on these mannequins. People are giving me dirty looks. Now, see, this works great in the world of retail. But what about the spiritual department of our lives? What about in a relationship that, that some of us, many of us, are trying to cultivate with God? What does God want? What's He looking for from you? 
If you wanted to, to walk with God closer in 2017, maybe than ever before, how would you do that? What resolutions would you make? What changes would you undertake so that you don't just stay in the same place? You're not just a baby Christian, or you're not just pretending to, to be a Christian. What steps could you and I actually take to change who we are and present ourselves, as Paul says, as a gift back to God? What does he want? It turns out that that same principle is at work, that's at work in the world of retail, is actually at work here too. Left to our own devices, left to our own thoughts, we're much like my big, big um, brother-in-law, waddling through the stores, picking through the stuff, saying, I think she'd like this. I think she'd like that. We do that with God. We kind of waddle through our lives and we think, well, I'd like to grow a little closer to God. I think I know what he wants. And so we resolve to do things to, to please him. Here's what I'm going to do, God. I know you want something from me. I'm going to, so I resolve this year I'm going to give more money to the church. Now I want you to know that that is a fine resolution. I'm okay with that. <laughs> but that's not what God wants. He's okay with it. But it's not, it's not as deep. It's like with my kids. It's my kids gave me wonderful presents for Christmas, but it's not what I really wanted. Because I, I actually kind of want the same thing for my kids that God wants from you. We might resolve we're going to go on a missions trip. Here's a crazy one. We might resolve we're going to show up at Menham Hills on time. How about that one? <laughs> we might think that God's greatest desire is our behavioral modification. We fall into this trap every new year, right? I'm going to follow God more closely, so this year I'm going to drink less, smoke less, curse less. That's what God wants. Yeah, but it's really not his greatest desire. These are all good things. They'd all be pleasing to God, but it's not really what he wants. I mean, my kids got me some nice gifts. I got Bose headphones. I got, I got an Alexa. Anyway, I could go on about that. But anyway, I like the Alexa, but it's not really what I wanted. I wanted something else. It turns out that just like in retail, there are experts in the area of the desires of God who have already looked into this, who have already told us and laid out for it is what God truly desires more than anything else from us. And here's the deal. When you understand these things and when you give this gift to God, it's like me giving Joan Metz tickets. Like the gift actually comes back. It turns out I benefit too. When we get the gift to God, when we give God what he's really looking for, we benefit from it too. So here's three things I want you to consider this year. Three, not promises. Don't kid yourself, right, with God with promises. But, but, but three resolutions that you might want to make in regards to your walk with God this year. Here's number one. You need to give to God the right gift. I read for you Psalm 51, this story about King David, right? This guy that loved God, but he got caught up with a woman and then... Then he got scared that people were going to find out about the woman, so he had the husband killed, and, and it was all racing through his mind, and he's trying to be a good follower of God, and, he, and, and, and Nathan comes, and, and his sin comes out, and he's just crushed with guilt. And, and so he, he does what a lot of us would do. Well, you know, God's mad at me. I, what can I do? Here's how, here's how Psalm 51 ends. I didn't read it to you before. Psalm 51, verse 16. God, you don't delight in sacrifice, David says, or I'd bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. 
And this is shocking in the world of David because he was taught, he was brought up that this is what God wants. When you sin, you go and you make amends to the sin. you got to go give something back. You transgress the law of God, so you need to go to the temple. And when you get to the temple, there's a large set of stairs. And you go up the large set of stairs, and then you enter into a giant court. And in that court, there's people, there's money changers, and they'll change your money. And then there's people that are selling sacrifices. And you'll buy the sacrifice, and you'll, you'll, you'll offer it on the altar. And then you're good. And so David, David comes to a realization. He goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. As, I, as I'm reflecting on this, I don't think that's really what you want. This is so often what we do. See, we still do this. I'm going to show you in a minute. We think, you know, I screwed up. I can't believe I did that with her to him. So God's probably angry. I, I, what am I going to do to appease him? He probably wants something. See, the ancient world, this is not just a Christian thing. The ancient world is littled. In fact, it's not a Christian thing at all. The ancient world is littered with temples and altars proclaiming this misunderstanding. Every god ever worshipped by man, the underlying principle has been, you better keep him happy. You better keep him happy. And so to do that, see, he wants your stuff. You got, you got to make some sacrifices to him. So you better give him your crops. Oh, he's still not happy. Well... You better maybe start cutting your body or, 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 or sacrificing your hair. And Well, that's not keeping them happy enough. Well, maybe I ought to, ought to need to sacrifice my wife or my kids or my firstborn. Because that's what people understood that God wanted. Hey, you know, I've screwed up. I've broken. I can understand. I feel the guilt of my trespasses. God must want something to me. I've sinned. And now you might go, well, that's so ancient. We would never do that today. But we still do. We have, there's plenty of reflections of the Christian faith today that say, light this candle, say this prayer, recite these words, give this amount. He's angry over your sin. In order to keep him happy, he wants a sacrifice. But David in Psalm 51, in a prophetic way, pointing towards Jesus that was to come, he says, you don't want sacrifice. Because if you did, I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in my offerings. And he goes on, he says, because he, he's, he's figuring it out, he goes, my sacrifice, oh God, is this. It's a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. God, that you won't despise. Another translation put it this way. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You won't reject a broken and repentant heart. Did you know that's what God wants from you? He's not looking for your stuff. He's not looking for your promises. He's not looking for your behavioral modification. He's looking for you to have a broken, repentant, and contrite heart. You look at David, he's under the conviction of his sin. And he realizes God didn't want his things. Guys, God doesn't want your offering, your money, your promises. God doesn't want your promise to never do it again. Here's what he's looking for. A broken and contrite and repentant heart. This is the mark of all of God's children. It's foundational to Christianity. Being a Christian essentially means I will journey through life understanding I have come way short and we will have this kind of broken heart. Now here's what bothers me as, as, as somebody trying to follow after Jesus. Somehow, guys, we have allowed ourselves to be portrayed to the culture as people who are anything but broken, repentant, and contrite. We've allowed ourselves to be seen as haughty, prideful, self-righteous, and judgmental. People who have it all together, right? 
Remember we used to take the church directory photos, right? And everybody gets all cleaned up, right? And we all look all good and religious. A couple of us hold our Bibles in the photo, right? I'm righteous. But that's not what God is looking for. What he's looking for is a people who would dump the pride and the arrogance, who'd be willing to examine their own heart, see their own shortcomings, understand how broken they are, how deep the vein of sin in their lives is. And let go of the self-righteousness and turn to God with a heart of repentance. Not just sorrow, but a commitment to actually turning away from the sin. That's what that word repent means. David's saying what God really wants is not my stuff. He wants my heart. He wants to set it free from human pride. And so here, here's, here's how you do Here's one way towards that. I don't know if you've ever any of you been involved in AA. It's an amazing program. I, really, the, the founders of AA were Christian folks. And essentially, they took Christian principles and, and overlaid it onto the sin of alcoholism, onto the sin of brokenness. But you can t- take those same principles and overlaying it on our sin, our straight-out sin, right? So, you know, there's this one principle in AA. One of the steps is to take a ruthless self-examination. When's the last time you did a ruthless self-examination and started to take a deep look at yourself? Allow, allow that brokenness, allow that look to break your heart, to disarm your pride and turn towards God. Now listen, guys, if you're new to, to faith, if, you, if you're new to Mendham, and maybe you're just kind of moving towards Jesus and this is kind of interesting, I have good news for you. You're in great shape here because you're just probably sinning wildly you know, and you're aware of it. You're out doing whatever it is you want to do, right? And that's, I mean, well, of course you, why wouldn't you, right? You have no commitment not to. And so the good news for you is that it's easy to see some of those brokenness, some of those patterns. Folks who have grown up in the church, folks who have been around Jesus a lot, we get great at covering up sin. Conviction and repentance, they come easy at first when we clearly see how far short of God's mark we are. That's how sin is defined, falling short of the mark of God. We get it. We see it. We mourn over it, those of us that are far from God. But church friends, it's harder for us because most of us have cleaned up the external. I don't live with him anymore. I try not, you know, I try not to uh, curse at work. But we don't go very deep. We don't do any work with our heart. We're like what in, what in AA they call dry drunks. See, a, a dry drunk is somebody that doesn't drink. But they haven't done any heart work. They haven't looked at what caused them to drink, what caused them to be so dependent on alcohol. They, they just stopped drinking. So they, they, they grit it out. I'm not going to drink. And they go through life. They don't drink, but they don't live because they never dealt with their heart. And it's the same issue with us in sin. We stop sinning. I'm not going to curse anymore. I'm not going to cheat anymore. I'm not going to steal. But we never dealt with the heart issue. And so we go through life and we might sin a little less, but we're not living. In 2017, God's not looking for your stuff. He's looking for your broken, repentant, contrite heart. Would you, would you think about saying a prayer? I dare you to say this prayer. God, through the power of your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's role in the Trinity is to essentially do a couple things. The first is to convict you of sin, and the second is to point you towards Christ. Would you say, God, I'm open. 
show me my sin. Now be ready, but show me my sin. And let it break your heart. And let it, let it move you towards God. You might even, if you want to get crazy, you might even like go to a friend like this Nathan did with David. You shouldn't go to them. Let them come to you. But, but maybe if you're, if you're playing around with yourself, if you're thinking through this, like, why, why, God, look, I know I don't curse anymore, and I know I don't sleep around anymore, but why am I so judgmental? Why do I criticize everybody? Why, why do I question everybody's motive? So the first thing God's looking for is a people that aren't proud and haughty, but a people with a broken and contrite heart. Now, here's the second thing. How do you do that? How do you get to a place where, where you really have that kind of heart to give back to God? Uh, fasten your seatbelts, okay? Here's the second thing I want to tell you today, church. I'm telling it to your pastor, too. The second thing that we need to do to, to grow in our walk with Christ this year, the second thing that we could give back to God as a wonderful gift from us would be this. We need to take sin more seriously. We need to take sin more seriously. I read a writer this week. He does some great stuff on, on this. And, and he, he said, the problem we have with sin in the church is we confuse it with mistakes. And so to help people understand how we do that, he takes out the dictionary and he just reads the culture's definitions of these two things. He says, sin, according to the dictionary, is a transgression of divine law. This is why when, you know, my kids uh, screw up, I don't go, you have sinned against me. Right? They haven't sinned against me, right? I, I'm not divine. It's a transgression. Sin is a trans transgression of divine law. It means there's a divine person. There's a God that has a law. The definition goes on. Any act regarded as such a transgression, especially, I love this, especially a willful or deliberate violation of a religious or moral principle. Hmm. So here's what the definition means there. It says, sin means I did it on purpose. Sin means it was willful. You know, I, I planned it. I knew better. I did it anyway. Sin means I knew it was wrong when I did it, and it doesn't make me feel very good about myself when I think about it. In fact, if I have sins, if I'm piling them up, if I'm living in it, after a while, I might think I'm not a good person. I might get a broken and contrite heart. I might need to turn towards God. So instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to clarify this. It turns out I didn't sin. I just made a mistake. I just made a mistake. It's just a mistake. Anybody could make a mistake. This writer goes on. He says, he says let me read you the definition of a mistake. A mistake is an error in, in action, an error in calculation or opinion or judgment caused by poor reasoning. Oh, I just wasn't thinking straight, or I didn't see, I didn't know. I didn't know any better. That's a lot better word. I love to say that I, I made a mistake. I'm not big on saying that I sinned. See, if I make a mistake, I mean, nobody's perfect. It's just a mistake. Honey, I know you caught me with her, but it was a mistake. Just move on. The assumption is you can't be too mad at me if it was a mistake. I mean, I didn't know any better. I wasn't paying attention. I took my eye off the ball for a minute. I mean, can't you give me a break? Nobody's perfect. It's such a better word. Don't you think we should eliminate the word sin and just go with mistake? Because we do that. 
But you see, there's a difference between a sin and a mistake. Sins, by their very nature, mean that we're accountable to someone for them. Mistakes, mistakes just happen. There is no accountability with a mistake. I mean, for instance, if I go to your house and I knock a vase off your mantle, I'll pay you for the vase, but you don't punish me. You don't say you trespassed against me. I don't have to pay you triple for the vase. I mean, there might need to be some restitution for a mistake, but there's no punishment involved in it. There's no separation involved in it. So let's just, here's what we like to do. We take every possible, imaginable bad thing we do, and we just dumb it down to where, oh, you know, it was a mistake. I screwed up. Is that what you want me to say? I screwed up. But there's a big difference between a sin and a mistake. Mistakes, I don't really have to ask you to forgive me. I can say, look, I'm sorry, all right? I'm sorry. Can we just move on? Sin, that's different. But here's the biggest difference, and here's where the twist really comes in. You see, if everything I do wrong can just be dumbed down to where it's just a mistake, then that makes me, as this writer says, a mistaker. I'm a mistaker. I make mistakes. I don't sin. I mean, if I, don't, if I don't have sin, I'm not a sinner. And if I'm not a sinner, I don't really need a savior. You see, if you're just a mistaker, all you got to do is try harder, do better. Mistakers, you just need to break some habits. But if I'm a sinner, see, that's more fundamental to who I am at my core. So I don't like that word. If I'm a sinner, then, then simply trying harder isn't going to get it done because if I'm a sinner, then I probably, I'm indebted to someone. I, 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 I created a debt. I probably deserve something that I don't even really want to know that much about. If I'm a sinner, trying harder isn't going to help me. If I'm a sinner, you see, if I get this, if I, I'm a sinner, you know what I need? I need a Savior. And so along comes Jesus. It's absolutely fascinating. Along comes Jesus into this world and as we know, he's full of love and of grace and of forgiveness. He went out to the green. Tell me about Jesus. Oh, he's wonderful. And he is. And he, and he has compassion. And he does. But Jesus also does something in terms of sin in our understanding of it. Jesus, in a, shout, in a sense, shouts this. He goes, you guys, need, you guys need to take sin more seriously. I don't think you understand what you're involved in. He doesn't walk this back. He raises the bar. See, Jesus comes along. And he teaches two very opposing ideas that seem that they shouldn't even come out of the same person's mouth. We'll see it in a second in Matthew 5. He comes along, and in a sense, he doesn't try to make everybody feel better. Oh, don't worry about it. It's just a mistake. Don't worry about it. He comes into an environment where, where the religious leaders have sort of dumbed down the law to say, all you got to do is just be a good person, follow these laws, don't break the laws, don't murder anybody, you know, don't steal, keep the law, you'll be all right, you're righteous, it's not that hard. God's not as serious as maybe you think he is. And Jesus comes in and he pushes the bar way back up and he goes, no, 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 no. This is much worse than you thought. See, you thought you were kind of bad. I, I, I don't want to break it to you, but you know, you're, really, you're really bad. See, you thought you were good. You're not that good. You thought you were righteousness. You're not. It's like he comes along with one message that's extraordinarily condemning in a sense because he says nobody's good enough to be in God's favor. And then he comes right along and goes, oh, but by the way, God loves you. 
Oh, God loves you. Just the way you are, he loves you. And people are going, wait a minute, that in my, my worldview, that doesn't make any sense, right? What is it? Either I'm terrible or God loves me. And Jesus goes, yes, it's both. You're worse than you thought, and God loves you more than you could imagine. And Jesus, he gets this crowd around him as he starts teaching early in his ministry. And he starts to, to it's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew, starts in chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus looks and he goes, look, he tells the crowd, don't misunderstand why I've come. I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. I came to accomplish their, their purpose. In other words, look, if you think I came to tear the laws down because you see me around town doing things that are not lawful, if you think I came to tear them down, to dumb them down, to make it easier, to lower the bar so you can just get over it a little bit better, uh, better and be holy, I didn't. I came here to fulfill everything that was taught in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus goes on, he says, so if you ignore the least commandment, the least, and you teach others to do the same, you're going to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. I'm not lowering the bar, Jesus says. I'm ratcheting this thing up. And then he sees, he sees likely on the outside of the crowd, the Pharisees and the religious folks and the righteous folks. These folks made a living being righteous. Their job was to not sin. They didn't have other jobs. They needed all their time to make sure that they looked good, that they didn't break any of the rules. And Jesus sees them, and he, he takes the crowd. He says, you see, you see the Pharisees? You see the religious elite? He says, I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And you can imagine the average guy going, what? I got a job, dude. That guy's getting paid to be good. He doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't know what the language is like down at the shop. He, he, doesn't, deal, he doesn't deal with the hot girls coming on to him at the office Christmas party. He doesn't understand. You want me to be more righteous than him? I mean, how is that possible? I'm doomed. So Jesus goes, let me step it up a notch. Watch this. He said, you heard our ancestors were told, you shall not murder. Have you ever asked anybody that's outside of church that doesn't really know the scriptures at all? You ever try to convict them of their sin and you say, you know, I think you might be a sinner. They immediately say, well, I might not be perfect, but hey, I haven't murdered anyone. So I think I'm okay. Things haven't changed. Jesus looks at the crowd and goes, you know your ancestors were told in the Ten Commandments, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. And all the religious people go... Darn right. Darn right. Amen, brother. And then he says, but I say even if you're angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. Wait, what? You mean I, you mean I didn't, I didn't pull any triggers. I didn't punch. I didn't throw any fists. But you're saying that I'm in the same boat? Jesus goes, you know, you, you probably heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. Yes, yes. It's me and my wife. I've never touched another woman. I'm good on that one too. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What? I didn't touch anybody. I just looked. 
Jesus says, look, let me help you understand your situation. He says, you've heard the law that says love your neighbors and hate your enemies. Yes, yes, Jesus, eye for an eye, I am on board with you. But I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus, I don't, I don't pray for my neighbors. I don't really pray for anybody. And you expect me to pray for my enemies. You expect me to pray for the people who are persecuting me, taking my stuff, the Romans. That's the standard, Jesus. That's righteousness. That's what God expects of me. So you're telling me is, here's what you're telling me. I'm a murderer because I'm angry. I'm an adulterer because I have lustful thoughts. And basically, I'm never going to please you because I don't love my enemies. Hello, God. Uh, what is it going to take for me to be righteous? There is nobody righteous. And Jesus goes, I know. That's the point. There is nobody righteous. See, you, you all came, Jesus says, and I'm thinking that you were just mistakers, that you just needed to do better. I'm here to convince you that you're sinners and there is no hope for you if it depends on your efforts and your righteousness. Here's the amazing thing, though. Throughout the gospel, the people who were most convinced that they fell into this category, this is why it's easier for folks outside of the church than those of us that hang around the church a lot. Throughout the gospels, the people that were most convinced went that they fell into that category, they ran to Jesus. They loved him. He wasn't anything like him, but they liked him. The tax gatherers, the prostitutes, the men and women who were condemned by society as being sinners, they loved to be with Jesus because he had two messages. He said, you're a sinner, you're in trouble. And they said, I know. When's the last time you said, I know? He said, I know. And then, and then Jesus said, God loves sinners. And he sent a savior on your behalf. Jesus says, you know, here's the deal. You're hopelessly lost, but God has sent me to find you. And here's what his message was. Until you embrace the fact that you're a sinner, a sinner, not a mistaker, you're not open to embracing the fact that you have a Savior. As long as, as you think you're a mistaker, you're just going to keep trying to be, be good. Until you finally come to grips with the fact that you can't do these things. There's something fundamentally wrong with you. That's how you get a broken and contrite heart, which is what God's looking for anyway. And that's the teaching. But for Jesus, and it should be for us, but it isn't oftentimes. For Jesus, it wasn't just about merely teaching. He needed to show the world these actions. Oh, that we could be better as a church about not just knowing these things, but showing the world these actions. I want to share with you a story that will conclude this piece. Uh, take a look at the temple. This is the Temple Mount as it exists today. And so... Um, this wall here, I believe this is the southern wall down here, and you see the steps on the bottom coming up to it. The story I'm going to tell you takes place here, and the reason I'm showing you this picture is because it's a real story. It happened right here. It happened, it happened right, maybe right where those people are gathering, if you see those people there. It's a true story. It's not just some, some kind of old religious story. It's a true story. In fact, uh, I want to show you the model of the, the temple as it was in Jesus' day. And so people would come, and they'd come up all of these steps here daily, weekly, annually, ceremonially, to, to kind of overcome their sins. Because they thought, remember, they thought that, that God wanted sacrifices. That's what they thought he wanted. 
And so they would come daily, weekly, monthly, annually, ceremonially, up the stairs, into here, this big open square area, which is called the, um, the Court of the Gentiles. Anybody could come in there, and there'd be money changers there. There'd be animals there. Everybody would be trying to get forgiveness of their sins. This was what was going on, and this is what's happening in this story. So now you see it. You see what's taking place there. Everybody in this story has been up and down those stairs thousands of times, walking into that court, trying to understand, walking the kind of the walk of shame, right? Walking up the stairs. Oh, I can't believe I did it again, but I got to go back here. I got to sacrifice something. God is God's angry. I need, to, I need to sacrifice something. Here's the story. John chapter 8, early in the morning. Might have still been dark. Sunday really coming up. He, Jesus comes again into the temple, just what you see there. And the people were coming to him. He probably came up those steps, through that gate, into that court of Gentiles. And he sat down and he began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court. Now this is interesting. What time is it during the day? Early. And they drag this woman. What, what, is she, what are they doing dragging her there at 6 a.m., 5 a.m.? Because it's likely they've been holding on to her for just this moment. Just this opportunity. Oh, he's in the temple now. He's got a lot of people around him now. Get the woman. We've got him trapped. Let's see what he's going to say. They drag this woman out of her prison cell. They drag her across town. They drag her up the stairs, through the gate, into the court of the Gentiles. And they throw her down on the ground before Jesus. And they said to him, teacher, because they had an agenda. And the agenda was not for her. It was not her welfare. In fact, Maggie, you can put that picture up. We've got kind of a cool picture maybe to help frame it in your mind. They said to him, teacher... This woman has been caught in adultery, caught in the very act. And so this crowd that was waiting kind of grows quiet. and Maybe others start to gather as she's weeping at his feet. She knows what's likely coming for her. She used to go up and down those steps. She used to sacrifice, and now she's going, I'm now going to be the sacrifice for my own sin. And so they say in front of this crowd with this woman at his feet, Jesus, you know the law. In the law of Moses, and he was the ultimate authority, in the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such woman. What do you say? And here they are. They're, they're thinking, we've got him. We've got him. What's he going to say? I mean, if he lets her go, it would be breaking the temple law. He would be doing it right here in the temple. It would be going against what Moses said. If he says that, all the people are going to leave, and that's what we want. We, we, we've got them. It was Jesus versus Moses. It was Jesus versus the law. It was Jesus versus the temple. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote on the ground. And they waited. And they waited. And they waited. And the questioners persisted in asking him the scripture. says, Jesus, what are you going to do? Jesus, you know what the law says. What are you going to do? But when they had persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin amongst you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. He who is without sin amongst you, guys. Now remember where we are, guys. Court of the Gentile. 
Remember all those steps? Walk of shame? Up the stairs? Animals? Sacrifices? Doing it for years, right? You remember all that, right? Guys, any of you that's without sin, go ahead, let her have it. It's an amazing thing about the story. This one writer pointed it out. I love, I love the way he said it. He said, there actually was one among them who had no sin. And he was the only one who had no stone. John says that when this crowd, when, the, when these Pharisees, when these self-righteous, when they heard it, when the context hit them about where they were, what they were about to do, and how unworthy they were to do it, when their self-righteousness began to subside, John says they began to go out, out the gate, down the stairs, one by one. I love, I never caught this until this study. One by one, beginning with the older ones, because it was the older ones who had hit first. It was the older ones who said, yeah, I've been coming here for 50 years because of my sin, so I kind of get what you're talking about. Beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where, where she was in the center of the court. And Jesus straightens up and he says, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And Jesus is not saying, did no one accuse you? Certainly she's been accused. Jesus did not say, did you do it? He knows she's guilty. She knows she's guilty. This is what Jesus meant. He meant, is there nobody here forcing you to pay for what you've done? Is there no one here forcing you to pay for what you've done? And so she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. I'm not going to force you to pay for what you've done either. And in that one little sentence, Jesus announces, you see, because I'm greater than Moses, and I'm greater than the law, and I'm greater than this sacrificial system, God does not want your sacrifices. God wants your heart, your broken and contrite heart. And then he ends with this. He says, so go. Now, you can go. You got a picture of going, I can go? He goes, yeah, you can go, you can go. Now go, and, and, and from now on, sin no more. You can go. But listen, you, 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 God, I want to encourage you to stop. You can go, but don't do this anymore. See, when you understand the story this way, you understand that this is an invitation. It's not a condemnation. This is the tone of Jesus towards sinners. Because so often in the church, you're like, make sure you tell them to go and sin no more. But Jesus doesn't say it to her that way. This is the tone. We, we understand it all the time. This is the tone. We get the tone wrong. We think, oh, she's got to pay for her sin. And Jesus goes, no, you, you're free to go. I'll be paying for your sin. Now look, you got to stop sinning. You need to take this more serious. Why? Because Jesus knows what I've discovered. I'm old enough. I figured this out in my own life. Sin is killing you. Sin is destroying you. Sin is eating your lunch. It is messing up your, your relationships, your bodies, your kids, our dreams, our marriages, 
Our world, sin enslaves, sin destroys, sin ensnares. And Jesus looks at her and goes, woman, look, I'm not going to make you pay the price for this. I'll be happy to do that for you to square you up with God. But you've got to leave your life for sin because it's going to kill you. Because a short time later, Jesus would die for that sin. He would die for her adultery. He would die for your lustful heart. He would die for murder. He would die for your angry heart. Jesus knew he was about to replace the entire sacrificial system. And he urges her, sin not. Not because God is going to get angry or get even with you, but because sin will kill you. Sin not. Not because God is, is, is so ticked off with you, but because Jesus died for you. You, you know, you've got to stop. It's killing you. It's not merely a mistake. Jesus has already died for your sin, so why won't you stop? I don't know what your sin is. You probably do. I don't know what the besetting thing is that you can't get yourself out of. And I know it's not easy. I know. I almost did a visual, right, and brought like a little thing that spins in your hair. Real easy to get it caught in. Real hard to get it out. But Jesus looks at his bride, his church, the people he loves. He goes, guys, I've paid the price for your sin, but here's the deal. You've got to stop. It's killing you. It's destroying your witness to a world that needs me so much. Let go, move out, confess, leave your life of sin and walk away. And lastly, I'll close with this and the band can come up. Here's, Here's slide three. Last thing I'd ask you to do, would you consider falling in love for the first time or falling in love again with Jesus Christ? Because he's not who you think he is. He's not angry at you. He's not demanding a sacrifice from you. Do you know know what you do if you love God? This is how we started. What do I do? What does God want from me? Well, he wants your broken and contrite heart. When Jesus was asked, here's what Jesus said. In John 14, he said, look, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And John himself would later on say, this is love for God to keep his commands. And his commands aren't burdensome, John says. You might go, John, why are you giving me this now? You just told me that it's not about keeping the law. Because understand what Jesus' commands to you are. This is why number three is that you would fall in love with him again. They came to Jesus and they said, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And he replied, oh, that's easy. It's this, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law, all of the prophets hang on these two commands. You need to fall back in love with Jesus Christ. You need to understand him new. You need to understand who God is and what he's doing in your life. And you need to celebrate it wildly. The elders and I are committed in this season to creating new pathways for you to find him, to know him, to fall in love with him. So he's not just a religious figure, but that you're excited about him. Here's one thing I'm going to ask you to do. I, I only want you to do this if you want to do this, okay? So don't, you're not making me happy by it. Well, you're making me happy, but you're not making, I don't, I'm not putting this on you. Some friends at a church called Willow Creek that we're part of an association, they've put together this awesome thing. And so we're going to piggyback with them on it. And so if you're interested, in, I'm trying to create a pathway towards Jesus for you. You got a card when you came in, 30 days through the Bible. What we'll do is we'll send an email to your account every day with just a short devotional that will take you through the entire Bible in 30 days. You will see the arc of God's redemptive work, how he's really not interested in your sacrifice. It was just a reflection of what he's looking from, from Genesis to Revelation. And it'll come to your mailbox every day for the next 30 days. 
I want you to fall back in love with Jesus Christ. If you're interested in being part of this with me, I'm going to do it with you. Fill this card out. You got it when you came in. Bring it to my friends at the Welcome Center, and they would be happy to get you on the journey with me. And so, Lord, and so, Lord, we have made a mistake about who you are. We have shopped in the wrong aisles. We have picked the wrong clothes. We thought you were angry and wanted our stuff. Father, forgive us for that. And Lord, would you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, convict us of our sin. Show us how serious it is. Point us towards Jesus. And help us to fall in love for the first time or all over again. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen.